0: My guest today is Terence Young, a film and television producer. His documentary, The Pioneers of Hospice, is available for purchase on his website. You're listening to Personhood, The Story of Florence World and the Hospice Movement. This is a bonus episode, and I'm your host, Sol Abema. So Terence, um, tell us about your background. Where did you
1: grow up? Well, I I uh, was born and, and raised in uh, Detroit, Michigan, and uh, but I pretty much escaped there as soon as I was legally able to do so. <laughs> <laughs> and uh, my background is really uh, I got started in the film uh, actually through music. I studied my training is uh, as a composer and musician. And, um, I was, uh, early on in my career, I was, uh, composing music for film and television, mostly small pieces and, uh, living in New York city. Mm. And, uh, I moved to Vermont and quickly found out that there was absolutely no work for composers. Uh, So I I hooked up with a uh, producer, a PBS producer, mm-hmm. uh, producing uh, wildlife. Uh, he was primarily interested in birds, and he had a series on PBS called The Backyard Bird Watcher. Mm-hmm. And I started working for him, uh, writing music first off, and then he asked me if I could write, and I started writing uh, scripts and such for him, and then... He had me basically assistant producer, and very quickly I found out that I was doing all the work and he was making all the money. So um, <laughs> wow. I, I struck out on my own because I I really liked the process of uh, of delving in, and specifically to documentaries, delving into uh, subjects and learning as much as I could and, and interviewing people that were experts and and telling telling those stories as balanced as I could so those those were my beginnings
0: yeah wow so when you're doing music was it like theme songs for shows or podcasts like this or just a, um,
1: a little of everything it's, you know there's some um, there there's some just background music or what we call a splash you know mm-hmm. first 10 seconds, there's a little splash, like NBC, da, 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 you know, that kind of thing. Yes. Yes. Uh, logo, logo music. And, um, I did some of that and I did some television, uh, spots, um, you know, uh, commercials. Uh, but then I also did a lot of work with, uh, modern dancers, writing whole pieces, compositions, mm. uh, that were commissioned and also doing soundtracks you know doing everything all the music within a particular television show and um, so that was uh, it was fun
0: so you are you are really highly gifted because you're doing the music you're writing the stories you're doing the production that is that's quite impressive
1: there brother i well I've, i had a lot of wonderful teachers along the way camera people and uh, lighting people and people that uh, sound people that have, uh, that have really gifted me with a lot of their knowledge. Uh, and I, I hire people when I have the budget, I hire mm-hmm. a lot of people that know more than I do, uh, to help it come together because all of these projects are a cumulative effort of, of, uh, the people that you work with. So, mm. so it's been, it's been a lot of fun of interest. Yeah. So which
0: project did you do and you felt like after this, I'm ready to start my own company that the project that gave you so much confidence and belief, because we need a lot of confidence to be able to be creative and do this kind of stuff on our own.
1: I, I think it was more cumulative okay. in, in my situation. And I think that it, um, I got a couple of uh, grants uh, and And a couple of uh, uh i'd say one in particular was a Vermont Institute of natural Science They needed a a promotional piece to help raise money to build a new center mm. and um It's interesting that the fellow that I worked for that I finally left. Um, he was, we were bidding together we, separately on the same job and I got the job, which <laughs> that gave me a lot of confidence that what I was doing was, um, that people were responding to it in the particular way that I approached it. And so, so that was, that was nice. And then I had a series of opportunities to, uh, to do some work for, uh, uh PBS mm. through connections uh, that I had garnered. So I think the stepping into working uh, at a PBS program gave me a lot of confidence, yeah. uh, but also a lot of responsibility. It's, it's, uh, it's a different, just doing smaller films that you release yourself, that's one thing, but once you step into a broadcast uh, situation, hmm. you're very accountable for every image and every sound and every interview that you produce. You've got to make sure that you have all the legal requirements so it's quite a learning curve
0: yeah i don't know if this is a uh, for a creator like you whether it's a good question but what do you think is your signature work up to now i know you're still developing still writing stories and you still have a lot to do what what would you consider your signature work
1: well that's that's really a hard one to answer <laughs> because i i think each one uh, you know how do I feel about these documentary pieces is that mm. it's the work that people are doing that we're highlighting. That's the, of importance. Um, um, and sometimes these stories tell themselves and, uh, pioneers of hospice was one of those kind of stories mm. because of the people involved are so compelling. Um, and, uh, so I try to get out of the way, um, I don't have a lot invested in, you know, this is my style, you know, I'm not, <laughs> I'm not Ken Burns, but, um, but, uh, but I'd say that, um, one of the pieces that I'm most proud of, um, is, uh, is the pioneers of hospice, especially the revised, uh, version that you, that you, uh, that I sent to you. Mm. So, um, and I also uh, have worked with my wife, who's an anthropologist, and has been studying how medicinal herbs come into the supply chain all over the world. And we continue to do, to do that work, um, both in video and on a website. And hmm. we we made a film called Newman and N U M E N about the healing aspects of herbal medicine. And, uh, and some of the drawbacks of allopathic Western medicine. So mm-hmm. I'm very proud of that one as well.
0: That is powerful because I think many people are realizing, you know, the power of those, our medication. I'm from Africa, and that is what we use most of the time. Yeah. Yeah.
1: 80, 80% of the world, that's what they use yeah. as their primary health care. Yeah. So.
0: So I, w- I was doing research on, on hospice and hospice history in the United States, specifically the work of Florence World, and I was impressed to find out about your documentary, and through a process I was able to have it, and to see you hanging out with all these legends in our field, it was quite uh, uh, impressive. How did the idea start?
1: Well, it's a little bit of a history, so bear with me, but... Um, mm-hmm my brother um, uh passed away from a l s uh and but it was very uh, traumatic experience because he was dr. Kevorkian's last patient mm. for which Dr. Kevorkian was uh sent to prison convicted mm. uh, and it was a very public you know we were on television and and my brother's name. It was in the media, and it was it was a very uh, traumatic experience for me and my family. Um, so I, it, it, part of that was that the hospice that my brother had was not, you know, not all hospices are created equal. Yes. And um, this was a, a faith-based uh, hospice in the area that he lived, and they really sort of let him— fall through the cracks. He totally was behind the ball on everything, um, for his care. And they just didn't really show up. And so I wanted to, I wanted to learn more about hospice and what makes a good hospice as opposed to what our experience was. Mm. So I, when I came back to Vermont after my brother's death, I enrolled with a fellow firm filmmaker, um, uh, at, at the, uh, up in Burlington, Vermont uh, the VNA um, had hospice training for volunteers so I, I, um, I took that training mm. and then on the last day of the training when, when they were uh, sending us off they, they announced that they were going to have an interview with Dame Cicely Saunders and uh, Florence Wald mm. a radio interview and, you know, they were both in their late 80s at that point. Maybe yeah. even I think Cicely Saunders might have actually been just turned 90. And so at, when the class ended, I went up to the directors and I, I said, you know, these wonderful people are going to turn into rain clouds pretty soon. You know, they're, yes. we should, if, if nothing else, you should bring a camera and just archive that interview so that you have those images. And, um, and then they said, well, what, what would it take to make a film? And, uh, and I, so I put together a budget and, and uh, you know, a skeleton crew, what I would need and, and uh, presented it. And then within two weeks we had found the money to, to uh. make the film, so it was something that resonated with people, and uh, and the the name of the the name of the organization that raised the money and ultimately enabled the film is Madison Dean Initiative, mm. which uh, was was then merged with the uh, VNA of um, up in Burlington. So mm. that's how the origins began, and then that radio interview it shifted. And so we went, took the crew over and we shot the interview with Florence Wald and Dame Cicely Saunders in London at St. Christopher's.
0: Was that in that you were sitting in the chapel? Uh, yes. So yes. what were your impressions of these pioneers?
1: Well, I I became over time, because we, we ended up interviewing Florence uh, three different times, and I was in touch with her quite a bit, and um, we became really good buddies. Uh, she was just the sweetest human being, just a selfless person, and, mm. uh, and but really funny and, and very sweet. And so she and I really hit it off, and we were in contact quite a bit. But we also uh, interviewed—we uh, traveled out west and interviewed Elizabeth Kubler-Ross— and uh, she, was, she was a rebel to the end. <laughs> uh, she was quite something. And, um, and we also traveled up to uh, Canada and interviewed uh, Balfour Mount. So, my impression of all of them was that they were um, so incredibly thoughtful and invested in the easing of suffering uh, for people at end of life, um, completely their whole lives dedicated to it. Mm. Uh, Cicely Saunders was a tough person. (laughs) (laughs) She she didn't suffer fools gladly. And (laughs) she, uh, she was tough, but she, you know, as you can see in the film, she's very direct and she's 90 years old and her mind is as sharp as a, as a razor. She's incredible. Yes. Um, and i uh, we got to know Elizabeth Kuberos pretty well too, and had some fun with her uh, in her declining time mm-hmm. so my impression was that the, these people were in the right place at the right time, and they did amazing work in mobilizing the the, the world to embrace issues in and around uh, end of life
0: mm-hmm. Like you said, you know, Cicely Saunders is way out there, um, even Elizabeth Cobler Rose, But Florence Wald became uh, of interest to me because she didn't write much, and it looks like she didn't even do too much interviews. So what no. kind of—yeah, you had this kind of friendship. What kind of a person was she?
1: Well, you know, she was this tiny little person. She's very <laughs> tiny, but, you know— I think that her strength and her contribution um was sort of behind the scenes and enabling others mm. and she was not the kind of person that would take credit for things yeah uh, she you know she often it's interesting she often would um if anybody did try to thank her or Pray, uh, lay any kind of praise she would always say oh no you know it's uh, this was a community effort and, and these are the people that really made it happen and um so she's very humble mm-hmm. very humble but she was also incredibly insightful and understood um the complexities of what's involved uh with making hospice a reality and one that's true to its mission. Yeah. Uh, and she was steadfast in that. So she the kind of person who um, really f- followed the truth. You know, there weren't any alternative facts yeah. in Florence Wald's uh, <laughs> world. Uh, and she, again, just very humble, very sweet, but very firm in her understanding. And she had a, a wide a wide view mm. of how, as you heard in the film of how this movement came into being yes. and that she really credits, um, she really credits, uh, Elizabeth Kuberos and Cicely Saunders in giving this method to the world and then the world demanding it through a social movement, mm. which was happening at the same time as civil rights movement and the Vietnam war. All, and and uh, many other you know women's rights movements um, that were happening simultaneously in the late sixties. Mm.
0: So you came to hospice with this unique background with the experience of your brother, and then you come as a hospice volunteer and then you meet these legends of hospice. What did you learn about life, about hospice, about everything from this? from your brother's experience to interacting with these pioneers? Yeah,
1: well, it was, um, what I learned was that there were, it was hopeful. It was hopeful that, um, you know, there are just quite a number of people that fall through the cracks in the medical system, especially at end of life. And, um, and, they're, and part of that problem, and it still exists today, even after so many years of hospice being a reality, there's so many doctors that um, are not well-trained in what happens after you stop treating in a curative way Mm. to support the life that's left at end of life. Mm. And so palliative care, I think, is a very important, incredible permutation of medical care in that they recognize you know that cure uh, you've moved past the curative stage and, and you need to support the person as bell Mount says to celebrate that that life hmm. he made, he is one of the statements in the film which is one of my favorites is that he says either 100% alive or a 100% dead You're, you know and while okay. you're alive, it, you know, it's what can hospice do? What can medical people do to support that life? Mm. And so that's that's the main thing that I learned um, was supporting that life um, can make a huge difference so that people can settle into not only living their life as best they can, but also to support the telling and remembering and imparting of their story because you know, a lot of people at the end of life, you say, you know, you ask them about their story. And so mm-hmm. oh, I did, you know, I just had a normal life. I didn't really have a story, but then you start asking specific questions and, and people say, Oh yeah, well, I, I guess I did have a story. Mm-hmm. And oftentimes, uh, children, their children, and their family members have never heard half of these stories. And so it's this incredible um, journey of, of people finding meaning to their lives through telling their stories and, and their children understanding the the meaning of that life and the struggles, the challenges, and also the gifts. So I think um, for me that, that has been the biggest gift is helping people to tell their stories because mm. i i remain uh I remain a, a hospice volunteer
0: oh up to today
1: yes yes
0: what kind of stories have you heard without revealing names that have inspired you about life and about being human and about empathy
1: mm. yeah. Well, it's, I guess, uh, talk about the one, you know, one fairly recently. Um, And this gentleman had been a a salesperson in a big department store for his whole life. Mm. You know, at one point selling washing machines and then lawnmowers and, you know, nothing. I wouldn't say that his, his uh, vocation was something that was particularly meaningful to him. Mm. Um, but, um, but what he talked about most in, in that situation was how connecting to people and just, he's very, he was a very curious person mm. um, and he liked to uh, ask people about their lives and and, uh, in a way um, in a funny way sort of live, you know, understand people through their, you know, vicariously through stepping into their world. So mm-hmm. he was a, a natural interviewer. He would have been a great documentary uh, producer because he just mm-hmm. had this natural curiosity. and, and you know, I would come into the situation with him. He, there was a, he had, um, uh, uh parkinson's hmm. in sort of late stages and when he wasn't falling asleep because that happened sort of in the last stages he he was always turning the tables on me it, it was <laughs> you know I would I was asking him questions and then he'd sort of answer the question with a question and then he'd like turn it up. he was a master at that and and so what I learned I think what I'd learned and I continue to learn about being in those situations there is that they're every one of them is completely different. Um, and that the most important skill that I can bring there is just to listen, Mm. is to be a good listener and, uh, whatever comes up, sometimes nothing comes up yeah, and that's fine. You know, oftentimes, you know, I'd say 70, of the time, it's to give respite to the primary care person, yeah. which is usually a spouse or, a, or a, a child or somebody in the family that's caring for them. And that's fine. That's, that's important work too. But, but what I have found is that you just have to listen deeply mm. and leave your story at the door. And, um, and, that that unto itself is, is very instructive. I think, um, like Florence Wald, you know, she, she always, she never would talk about her story. It was really hard to interview her because she wouldn't, she'd always deflect to Oh, well it was because of them or they did this, or it was this time it was the culture and you couldn't get her to take credit for anything. Yes. Oh, um, so it, you know, um, Deep listening, I think, is the, the main thing that I come away with uh, from hospice training.
0: It is, it is really powerful. You know, I remember the times of volunteering, every time I left, you know, um, it gives you a lot of clarity about life because you're reminded every day that we live and we die. And I think that gives you a sense of, uh, it encourages you to live life with realness, authentic, mm-hmm. And appreciative of the people around you the loves yeah. around you and it's really that's what i love it really keeps me grounded
1: if someone you know is suffering from mental health issues and could use some support please call the national alliance for mental illness helpline it is a free nationwide peer support service providing information resource referrals and support to people living with a mental health condition To contact the NAMI helpline, please call 1-800-950-NAMI. That's 1-800-950-6264, Monday through Friday, or send an email to info at nami.org. So so tell me a little bit about, I'm going to turn the tables on you a little bit. (laughs) Tell me a little bit about this podcast and and how, are you doing this through your own organization or is it... uh... Is it something being sponsored by another organization? Uh, No, we are not being
0: sponsored. Uh, Hospice Chaplaincy is a nonprofit organization. Uh, Our goal is to provide um, education, especially psychospiritual and psychosocial aspects of -of end-of-life care. Uh, But lately uh, I've been intrigued because uh, last year I interviewed um, Dr. Harold. He wrote a book called The Crisis of U.S. Hospice. And the idea is that hospice is changing from the initial dream or imagination of the pioneers. And that is what made me to to begin to research about the pioneers and to see what was their original vision for hospice and how has hospice evolved over the years. And on Monday here, we interviewed um, Kathy Seabold. She wrote the book, The hospice movement easing death's pain. And uh, just so to hear her perspective on how hospice has changed. And many people are saying hospice has changed. (laughs) So that is the background behind trying to tell this story, you know, to find out, especially here in America, from Florence Wilde, who was a doer. She was sold into, you know, taking care of these people and making sure that they die at least pain free, that they are taken care of. Yeah. and i'm trying to find out where did we lose this so yeah, for, yeah. <laughs> what did from your do you agree that hospice has changed from the original idea of the pioneers
1: i think in some ways i mean it, it it's as individual as each hospice because there are some hospices that are true to that mission mm-hmm. um but there but then some of these larger uh incorporated in, in uh, institutions, you know, hospitals that are bringing in hospice units and it, it almost becomes a budgetary decision, um, rather than relying principally on the, on the um, tenants of hospice mm-hmm. care. Mm-hmm. So I think it's a mixed bag, you know, the, it's, it's hard to make a sweeping generalization, but I would say the trend Mm. is towards the commercialization of hospice. And um, I'm not sure that that's such a good thing. Um, I was able to, I did some work also. I made um, some short films for the national hospice foundation Mm. and uh, for several of their um, honorary events when they're, Essentially, they're fundraisers where they they would have a, a big gala and uh, and honor various people in the culture. And I made a, several short videos, which I don't know if you've gone to my website, but uh, there are s- several yeah. short videos there with uh, Desmond Tutu yes. and Hillary Clinton and, and and many people that have really done some great enabling work around hospice and, uh, for access. Hmm. Uh, so I think, you know, so it's, it's an interesting thing to, to look at this big thing called hospice with over 13, 14,000 chapters around the world and say it's diminishing. I think each, you just have to you can't just make it up, you got to look at each one. Yes, like I know here in Vermont, we have some excellent hospice uh groups and that are not in that category of being and you know encapsulated into a hospital setting with those same kind of financial and budgetary limitations, etc. Mm. So I know, I'm not sure I answered that question not <laughs> pretty well. <laughs> you
0: answered well. So you see, so my, my passion is actually, you already started this, is to remind people, you know, where we come from. You know, it's easy to run ahead and forget where you come from. So your story, Pioneers of Hospice lays that foundation and I'm, hop- I'm hoping more people can listen to that. And that is what we're also trying to do, um, to tell the stories. And yeah. to let people realize that, you know, it came and this is and this is what Kathy Siebel said on Monday, is that for a movement to remain true to its original vision, the leaders of the movement must be the people who are affected. You see, but then she said for hospice, the people who are leading the movement are not the terminally ill. Yes. so so the movement is is there but it's not being led by the terminal ill so obviously it is easy to drift from the original vision because yes. for any movement to remain successful and to remain true it must be led by those people who are affected by the cause yes and that is
1: uh, and I think there are cheerleaders you know in the movement um that aren't terminate ill but mm-hmm. But Belmar, Belfer Mount is a, is a really good example. And there are many, 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 uh, nurses, doctors, chaplains in the, in hospice that are, uh, leading the charge of keep these tenants of hospice alive. Yes. And I think, uh, you know, for instance, we, I, I had heard about BJ uh, Miller um, uh, through an interview on Fresh Air, uh, yeah. a radio program on on uh, National Public Radio, yeah, and I contacted him and I went out to San Francisco and interviewed him to talk about, you know how how hospice was shifting and changing, and uh, I used just a little bit of it in the in the film that you watched, mm. um, and. You know, so people like him, they're, they're people that really get it. They understand yeah. it, and they perpetuate that motion. Um, it's just it's, the influence of money is mm. the, the biggest issue, I think. I'm not an expert, but <laughs> I, I think that, um, like, for instance, my mother, um, who had Alzheimer's, um, was in a uh, Medicaid facility in the Detroit area. Hmm. and uh, she had hospice, but really um, a wonderful nurse would come once a week and just check in on her, but it wasn't really hospice. But that facility was raking in all that money for hospice care. Hmm. But she was in the same ward with you know, somebody else that didn't have Alzheimer's, hmm. was not a dementia patient. And so, you know, there was no specialized programs really for her. And you can't when when you're in a situation where you can't afford to put your loved one into a specialized private program at Mm. $60,000 a month, Mm. you know, uh, you are forced to to accept and, and try to utilize as best you can the programs that exist under Medicaid in this country. So oftentimes those are not very good programs. Uh, if they're in a nursing home, for instance. Mm. So it, it's a challenge and I'm not sure what the answer is, but I, but I think for me, from the people I respect that, that I have interviewed over the, over as many years that I've been covering death and dying. Mm. Um, it's, keeping these very simple five spokes alive of hospice and mm-hmm. it's not hard to do it's not it's not hard to do and it in the simplicity of it and the human connection that's that's the basis of it yeah and so it that i don't you know i don't know how to engender that any more than just to the people people that come to this work often that they they get it. Yes, the people actually doing the work, um, the programs, the institutions may not get it.
0: Hmm. You said this is. What did you add now with the new new version? What What is new from the the new film to the old one you did in two thousand? Was it two thousand two? Two thousand four. We, we yeah.
1: interviewed in two thousand one. Started we got momentum um, in 2000, end of 2001 and into 2002 Mm. did the filming 2002 mostly. And then a couple of years of uh, the Madison Dean initiative was a group of uh, the board. They're all women. Mm. I was the only man involved in this project. And so there are 30 women on the board. And so I had to edit that first version with, getting consensus from 30 women over, over the course of a couple of years. So it was a slow process, a wonderful one, Mm. but it was, uh, but it was trying to get 30 people to agree on anything is pretty tough. (laughs) Takes time. (laughs) Takes a lot of time. And, um, and so, um, that film was never complete in my mind. Um, I felt that there were parts of that were just too long um, that people had got attached to, but didn't, and didn't want it to come out of the film. I wanted to tighten it up. Mm -hmm. And also we just didn't have access to a lot of the images that you see in the second film. Like there in particular, there's the original on a, you know, yellow pad paper of, uh, you know, the, the um, the wheel of pain, mm. total pain. Yes, was, uh, uh, the Cicely Saunders invented this term called total pain, mm. not just physical pain, but all of the aspects of pain. And that image that was not archived yet until after her death, mm. and um, and so we lots of the, that kind of archival uh, photographs were just not available. So in the newer, in the re, in the revision, there are, are more powerful images of that kind. But I also wanted, I, and then I tightened up and reordered the sections, um, uh, because I felt that it lagged the first version lagged, um, unnecessarily. Mm-hmm. And so I, I sharpened it up put in great visual elements that were not available to me previously, changed the music, um, and also, um, added some new voices, uh, including Don, uh, Schumacher, who was the head of the National Hospice Foundation at the time. Yes. And a lovely man. And, um, and also, um, interviewed, um, Dr. Kerr. Yes. Doing the the Dream Project, which I just is incredible to me. It's Just uh, something that I think has been ignored in hospice care, and it probably still is to some degree. It is.
0: I didn't know about that project until I watched your film.
1: <laughs> wow. So it's powerful. Yes, it's powerful I was impressed. And I, you know, I, I, I had a. This is a little bit gets into the woo woo area, but Mm. I had a visitation from my brother after he died Mm. and it was a very real experience and it wasn't a dream. It was a waking dream. Mm. And, uh, so that kind of thing is very healing, very moving. And so I wanted to include that. And, uh, so, so I think, uh, all in all this, the, the last version is much more concise yes, much more uh, pointed information and it's ordered correctly. I am setting up um, a video on demand uh, portal on my Vimeo site, mm. and we're going to start trying to uh, to get bring people back to uh, either renting the film or or purchasing it. I think of this film as primarily as a context for how, how the movement came into being, Yes, not more like a training film for, um, hospice volunteers and not necessarily a a general population kind of film. Um, but now I'm switching that, that, that thinking and I am going to try to, uh, promote it as much as I can and, so that people see it and understand what hospice is
0: because uh for me i like it because it gives you the context for hospice and then you get to hear the voices of these dreamers of this movement uh, their vision and and everything about it so i think it is a powerful foundational knowledge to why hospice and uh, i think if you're listening i would encourage you to get this um Uh, This film is is really impressive. Uh, You get to to know a lot about hospice as a foundational knowledge, and also it it will inspire you as you work with the dying every day. Mm. Yes, so thank you very much, Terence. Thank you so much. So how can people get it? Do you have a a website, a link? How can people get this?
1: Yes, um, we're working on the setting up the uh, the link in the next week or so, but it's, you can go to my website, which is brookhollow.tv. So that's B as in boy, R O O K H O L L O W dot T V. Um, and I'm sure you'll put it on your, your website. Yes. I'll, I'll forward that to you. Yes. And, uh, there'll be a, a place where you can, uh, click and have a link to go to the VOD site and or to purchase the, the film.
0: Okay. That's good. You know, we'll definitely keep in touch. I, I really I have some ideas of something we can do together too, so let's keep
1: in touch, my brother. Yes, I would love <laughs> to do that. And thank you so much for reaching out. All right, brother. Blessings. All right. You take mm-hmm. care. Mm-hmm. Bye. Bye-bye.
0: That was film producer Terence Young. I uh, thank you for listening.